Welcome to Foundation Church's weekly message. We hope you are equipped by this message from Pastor Tom Lively. For more information about our church, please visit foundationchurchfl.com. Many will remember the colorful story of Jesus' ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Matthew describes it for us. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Matthew 21, 1-11 Have you ever read this familiar story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and wondered, How was it that on that exact day, during that exact moment when Jesus rode in Jerusalem, through the eastern gate, there was a large crowd standing there with branches in their hands, just waiting to welcome the Messiah? Without proper understanding of ancient Jewish culture, the temple practices, we miss the beauty and power of this momentous day in the ministry of Jesus. All the lambs for the Passover came from Bethlehem. The high priest would go down from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and find a perfect lamb. After selecting the lamb, he would carry it back to the city and through the eastern gate on the tenth day of the Hebrew month of Nisan, four days before the Passover. As he would carry the lamb through the temple area, the people would gather with palm branches singing praises to the Lord. They would shout, Hosanna to the Lamb of God! who has come to take our sins away. This explains why the crowd was at the eastern gate, their palm branches in hand, when Jesus entered. In fact, Matthew tells us that the crowd actually met Jesus on the road as he was approaching the city. John adds that the crowd went out to meet Jesus because they had heard that Jesus had performed the messianic sign of raising Lazarus after four days in the grave. This background information helps us to understand the significance of what happened to Jesus that day. In essence, you have Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was declared to be the Messiah by John the Baptist, who belonged to the family of the high priest, being carried on a donkey through the eastern gate, probably just behind the high priest as he entered with the Passover lamb. Jesus of Nazareth, who has performed all of the required messianic miracles and has fulfilled all of the required prophecies to be the Messiah, is greeted by a crowd who are rejoicing because the sacrificial lamb of God for the Passover feast has been selected. 
It is also significant that Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. Matthew quotes as he tells this story in Zechariah 9.9, Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This passage calls upon Israel to rejoice because her king will come to her bringing salvation and riding on a donkey. The people cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. This phrase, son of David, was the most common title used for the Messiah in Jesus' day. The word Hosanna, which is taken from a key, messianic psalm, literally means save now. Even the choice of mount on which Jesus rode is significant. In ancient times, when a king came into a neighboring country on a mission of peace, he would come riding on a donkey. However, if he came to make war against that nation, then he would come riding a horse. We can see this in Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. It's awesome to realize that the first time Jesus came to earth, he came riding a donkey on a mission of peace. Yet when he returns to earth the second time, he will be riding a horse to make war against the nations. The fact that Jesus came through the Eastern Gate is important. There are several gates into the city. Why did Jesus ride in through that one particular? There were probably two reasons. First, the Eastern Gate is on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem, and we know that Jesus was staying in Bethany. Second, consider the words of the prophet in Ezekiel 44, 1-2. Then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, This gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. Ezekiel said one day God would enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate of the city, and after that day they were to shut or seal the gate so that no one would be able to enter through it again. If you have ever been to Jerusalem or have seen a picture of the eastern gate, today you know it is completely sealed and no one may enter through it. In fact, there is a Muslim graveyard and in front of it blocking the entrance. So if the gate is sealed up just as the Bible says, then God himself must have entered through that gate. When did that happen? It happened the day Jesus entered Jerusalem riding upon the back of a donkey. The gate has been sealed up for all time until the day the Messiah will return and walk through it once again. After the sacrificial lamb was selected by the high priest and carried through the eastern gate, it was tied to the entrance of the temple for all to inspect it. They had to make sure that it was without blemish, that it was perfect and faultless. This would continue for four days until the twilight hours leading up to Passover. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan, four days before the Passover. He is then brought into the temple, and he is examined or inspected by all for a period of four days. He is examined by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. He is seen by Pontius Pilate, and then Jesus is sent to Herod, who finds no fault with him. So he is sent back to Pilate. After four days, and after Jesus being tied to the entrance of the temple, so to speak, Pilate declares, I can find no fault with this man. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, is declared worthy to be the Passover Lamb. 
I will tell you this. This is like what the Lipley home is experiencing, although we are in a place that we believe we would never be in ever again. Like we have seen where our faith has gone. It is like, it's, more, it's miraculous, and I'll explain to you why. Tom, when he was in college, he played uh, for UCF. He played college football. He went out his uh, first year. His best friend was, I think, the quarterback. So in order for um, him to, for his buddy to go, the kind of had to say, his buddy said, he has to come with me. Just so happened Tom is, is good, so it worked out. So they let him come on as a red shirt. He actually got full scholarship. But he played the offensive line, and you like have to squat a lot of weight. You live. He lived in the gym. And because of that, there is a joint in his back that this is the third or fourth time it has caused him issues. It's been between 10 and 15 years, closer to the 15 years since we've experienced what we're experiencing right now. The first two times we experienced it was when he was with the sheriff's office. It was, I started dating him and we dated for three years. It was his, like, when we started dating, he was like a year and a half in. So it was when our kids were really small and it was very close together, these, both these times happened. He, this joint in his back locked up and he was out of work both times for 30 days. 30 days. The man, when he says he never gets sick, he does not get sick. Our faith, he does not, none of us really do. Um, but he is like off the charts with it. So he never took a sick day of work in the 25 years. The only sick day he ever took was the 30 days twice. So 60 days he took for this stinking back problem. Then he was, um, he had another issue with his back um, in the midst of all this. And that was where one of his discs went from being totally normal to being totally smushed. We went to, um, this is probably when he was like 34, 36. We went to, they keep making you go to all these places, get MRIs, and they took him to a specialist, and the specialist said to him, you need to think about getting a new career. The worst thing that you could possibly do is what you're doing right now, which is wear a gum belt and sit in a car for long periods of time. You're hurting that disc. The disc is smushed, and the only thing that um, we can do is a surgery on you, which I'm not gonna do right now because it's a brand new procedure. It's where we take a disc, um, a, a fake disc, and we put it in its place, remove the bad one, and we take the good one, uh, put a good one in. Well, Tom and I walked out of there and we were quite shaken because some of you guys you know, know what I'm talking about. You're like, okay, that is nothing like what I thought I was gonna hear when I walked in there. But both of us said, that's not gonna happen to you. You're going to keep this job. You're going to retire from this job. And that disc is going to go back to the way that it, is, it was originally uh, made in your body. Three years later, he had an MRI, and that disc was totally back 100% normal. <laughs> See, the power of life and death is held in the tongue. Choose to eat the good fruit. Choose to speak only life. So when... And we, we, like anybody who's texted me or wanted to know what's going on, I've, I've always, Tom and I, we're not trying to hide it. We weren't 
Like people would say, well, you speak a faith message and now he's in the bed. So what's up? What's that all about? My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. And thank God I don't look at him. I look at me because if I looked at him and I doubted him, then I'd have to doubt every single word that is in that Bible. He is always consistent. I am not. And so because of that, I can fix me, but I cannot fix God, right? So when he went to go sit down on, at the podcast Saturday night, for about a month, he had been feeling like his back, and we had been speaking to his back. He'd do great, and then he'd have these little moments where it'd be a little funny. Saturday night, last Saturday night, he went to go sit down in the podcast chair, and he's like, yeah, we got to go. Because if he had sat down completely, he was not getting back up. So, Aaron, fast as he is, and this was in the five-minute countdown. I think we had not even two minutes left. We put a replay up from the following week. We go home. We start, start speaking life. We started fasting. We started praying. Our staff started fasting. They started praying with us. The next morning, Tom got up and he walked. That's never happened, guys. He laid in the bed the first two times for 30 days. He did not eat. He did not go to the bathroom. He did not drink for the first 10 days because he could not get up out of the bed. The next morning, he was up walking. That has never happened before. The only reason he's not here this morning is because he can't stand for a long period of time or sit for long periods of time just yet. You'll see him here. He'll probably be at the podcast on Tuesday night because that's what we're believing for. We literally have never seen this. And, and this blowout was as bad as the previous two. But we took it on completely different than we ever had. And I encourage you, no matter what comes your way, don't respond like you have in the past. Attack it. Fast. Pray, speak life, get in the word. The man is in the word probably, I don't know, five, six plus hours a day in prayer longer. He is relentless. He is seeing the results of the work that he's doing. Most of the time, what we do is we respond like the world. We pray, we read a little bit, and then we listen to the rest of the world, whether it be through the TV, through our phones. We don't, we don't respond the right way. If you want God results, you got to delve into God. You don't delve into the world. That's how you get the results. So, now to this morning. I've never, I mean, I've taught. I'm a teacher. I'm not, I don't know, I'm not really a preacher. But I started working on a message. Scary, I know. I started working on a message, and um, for three weeks now, how many did you guys like the Palm Sunday video? <clears throat> See, there's really a lot of ways to learn, and I homeschooled my kids. They both have diplomas. Whether or not they deserve them is another story. <laughs> but they have them. They know a lot more about history than the school system teaches, though, I'll tell you that. So, um, Tracy, is Tracy here? Tracy's in the back, and Tracy Carruthers, God bless you, girl. Tracy Carruthers, um, Christmas, how many of you guys were here for Christmas service? That's good. Tracy and I collaborate. She does the videoing, I do the 
research and I do the the narrating, which is funny because I'm kind of nasally and at Christmas time, no one knew it was me. I'm like, how did you not notice that nasal voice? But they didn't. Um, so she and I, were, we were working on something for Palm Sunday because a lot of people don't know about Palm Sunday and the importance behind it. It's significantly important. Amen? Well, Easter is kind of the same. We've kind of just let the Easter bunny and the eggs kind of take over. And we just kind of just come and we experience Easter. We hear the same Easter message every single time. Not if you're coming here because Tom, I've had to convince him, you know, it's Easter. You got to preach an Easter message. You can't preach about COVID. You got to preach about Easter. So he kind of like, he does, he beats to a different drum. So, um, it's probably been about six weeks that she and I have been working on this video. And when we sat down on Friday night to finish it up for Easter, we realized this is pretty long. And Tom ain't going to give me the mic that long. <laughs> We're in trouble. So she and I thought, well, okay, I don't really want him in the bed, but I've never been so happy right now that he is in the bed. Because... <laughs> Like, I'm not kidding you. I worked really hard on this thing. <laughs> so did she. A lot of nights. So I wouldn't be able to share this with you if he was here, because he takes over, like me. Um, so we have something to share with you this morning. I hope it's a different way of learning. Like I was going to say, when you homeschool your children, they learn in several different ways. They learn by touch, hear, seeing, participating, right? So for you guys that actually learn by seeing and hearing, this is going to be great for you. It really will because sometimes just a lot of people will doodle while somebody's preaching to them because it helps them to learn. Well, for the person that has, is a visual person, you're going to love this. So, and then I will be back. Following the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus walked with them through Jerusalem and across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, where they took refuge in a garden so the Master could pray. Mark records the scene. He went on a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 35-36 The cup Jesus refers to in his prayer goes back to the Last Supper. He has just celebrated with his disciples as described by Luke. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Luke 22, 14-20 Where was Jesus just before the garden? He was in the upper room with his disciples, where they had just finished eating the Passover meal. We need to be aware of the richness of imagery that is found in this Passover meal, which in Hebrew is called a setter. The Passover meal, as found in Luke, speaks of various cups. At first glance, this seems to be of no significance, but this is not the case. Why are the cups so important? They are important because the Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples that night was not so different from the Passover that is celebrated today. Granted, today there are different foods than what they use, but the basic outline of the service, known as the setter, is the same. During the meal, there are four cups that are drunk throughout the evening. They are the cup of sanctification, the cup of thanks, the cup of redemption, and the cup of acceptance. Notice that the third cup is called the cup of redemption. You drank this cup after supper, which is precisely when the text in Luke says that Jesus took the cup and declared that from that moment on, it would be the cup of the new covenant. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus took the third cup of the setter, the cup of redemption, and declared that this cup filled with wine would now represent the redeeming blood that he was about to shed. When he prayed in the garden and asked the Father if the cup could pass from him, he was referring to this cup that pointed toward his death for our sins. If he did not accept the cup of redemption by pouring out his blood, there would be no salvation for anyone. Following his mockery of a trial, Jesus is taken to the place of the skull outside Jerusalem and nailed to a crossbar, which is then hoisted and fastened to a standing pole or sometimes a tree. This takes place at the third hour of the Jewish day or at nine in the morning for us. He hangs on the cross for six hours and then gives up his spirit and dies. Matthew describes the scene. From noon to three, the whole earth was dark. Around mid-afternoon, Jesus groaned out of the depths, crying loudly. Why have you abandoned me? Some bystanders who heard him said, He's calling for Elijah. One of them ran and got a sponge soaked in sour wine and lifted it on a stick so he could drink. The others joked, Don't be in such a hurry. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. But Jesus again, crying out loudly, breathed his last. Why is the text so detailed in recounting the exact time of Jesus' death? The answer lies within our understanding of another powerful Passover tradition. 
Matthew, the Jewish disciple, in writing to a Jewish audience, is compelled to relay this beautiful parallel. In the days of the temple, the evening sacrifices took place at 3 p.m. Passover was no exception. At 3 p.m., the day of Passover, the lamb that the priest had chosen from Bethlehem, the lamb from the nation, was sacrificed and presented to the people. The formal end to the Passover occurred when one of the priests would ascend the steps that led to the top of the walls of the Temple Mount. He would stand at the top of the southeast corner, and at 3 p.m., he would blow the Shaphah in a specific series of blasts. Why was the Shaphah used to announce the end of the feast? The answer is found back on Mount Sinai when God called Moses up to the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments. The story is told in Exodus 19, 16-19. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Most English versions use the word trumpet in the account of the giving of the commandments. The trumpet used in this text is not the typical trumpet that we would think of in modern terms. The Hebrew word for trumpet is shaphah, which is a ram's horn. In this passage in Exodus, then we see that the voice of God came in the form of a shaphah blast to the people. Out of this passage arose a belief that the shaphah was synonymous with the voice of God. Keeping this in mind, let's go back to the priest at Passover and his sounding of the Shaphat at 3 p.m. to bring Passover to a close. To those who heard the sound, it represented the voice of God declaring that his Passover lamb had been sacrificed. Not far from the Temple Mount, the crucified Jesus would also have heard the Shaphat blast. What did this blast mean to him? Think about it. The sound of the Shaphat meant that the sacrifice had been completed. Life had been secured. It was very possible that Jesus interpreted the trumpet blast as the voice of his Father, declaring that Jesus' work of giving his life so that we might have life was finished. God had made his selection of his lamb. The lamb was sacrificed and now God was presenting him for all to see. This seems to explain why the gospel records that it was precisely at 3 p.m. that Jesus cried out, It is finished! and passed into his Father's presence. Jesus had met all the requirements for the Passover lamb once and for all. No more lambs needed to be sacrificed from that moment on. The Apostle Paul attests to this when he writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb was to be of the firstborn. Jesus was the firstborn Son of God. We know that the lamb's bones were not to be broken. None of Jesus' bones were broken. The parallels are overwhelming. 
we can have absolute confidence in the fact that Jesus of Nazareth truly was our Passover lamb. Even the location where the crucifixion took place was prophetic significance. Let's look backward in time to when the Lord spoke to Abraham in Genesis 22:2. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham was told to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. We are told that because of Abraham's faith, the Lord said he would provide a sacrifice one day. The Lord will provide a sacrifice, my son. Then suddenly a ram appears in the thicket and Abraham sacrifices it in place of his son. A sacrifice? Oh my Lord, my Lord, my this promise had dual significance. The first lamb was given right away to fulfill the first part of the promise. The rabbis always saw this promise of a lamb to also be prophetic in nature, that the lamb was a picture of the Messiah who would come to be a sacrifice for them. The place of Jesus's crucifixion in Jerusalem, some call it Calvary, and yet some call it Golgotha, the place of the skull. What many people are not aware of is that Calvary is actually part of Mount Moriah. So even the place where Jesus died is the fulfillment of prophecy. Thousands of years before the death of Jesus, God promised Israel through Abraham that one day he would send them a lamb for the sacrifice. It is on the very mount where God said he would provide the lamb that Jesus the Passover lamb is sacrificed. The truth can no longer be denied. Jesus is the Lamb of God and He is truly the Messiah. The Bible records an incredible event that took place simultaneously in the temple and on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, something amazing happened in the temple. Matthew 27, 50, 51 says, When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, He gave up His spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Why is this important and how does it affect us today? In both biblical and modern times, if a Jewish father lost his firstborn son, he would tear his robe as a sign of grief and mourning. Imagine what was happening in the minds and hearts of those who were celebrating the Passover at the temple. First of all, we must remember that Passover was a pilgrim feast meaning that every Jewish male and his family were required to come to Jerusalem. So we know that the temple would have been overflowing with people and activity. Only the priests would be inside the actual temple building in the holy place where it was separated from the Holy of Holies by a thick curtain or veil. Imagine that as they are worshiping God in the temple, the temple veil is torn in two before their very eyes, revealing the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. The glory of God is now exposed. They can see into a place where only the high priest could go. God has just torn his robe because his son has died. And in doing this, God has indicated that the way into his presence is now open for all because the death of his son. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself 
had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. He had rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priest and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, you go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them. His disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Where did Jesus' body go? The idea that the disciples stole Christ's body is one of the biggest lies ever told. According to scholars, at least 16 Roman guards were assigned to the tomb where he was buried, and a Roman seal was impressed over the large stone that closed the entrance to the tomb. Had the seal been found broken and the contents of the tomb been missing because the guards were sleeping, they would be burned alive in their armor. Jesus' disciples feared for their lives, and it is difficult to imagine 11 men walking around 16 sleeping guards trying to move a stone possibly weighing two tons, then unwrapping the corpse, leaving the linen in the tomb, and carrying the body away without waking even one of the guards. The utter nonsense of this lie cannot be overemphasized. Anyone familiar with Roman law would have known that these alleged sleeping guards should have been punished, but instead they were paid. 
noticed that the idea that the disciples stole the body was still being repeated when Matthew wrote this gospel. Matthew 28, 16-20 says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me, and in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark 16, 19-20 says, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Christ hath said that ye are the light of the world. A city which is set on a hill cannot be hid. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. disciples, also known as the Twelve Apostles, served as the foundation of the first church. They played a major role in ministering to people during Jesus' time on earth and after his ascension. While with Jesus, they learned from him and helped him to fulfill his mission here on earth. They were there to witness the completion of what was prophesied decades before the birth of Jesus. Despite the disciples' backgrounds and professions, Jesus saw their potential. He called them to be fishers of men, future missionaries. He trained them for three years to become leaders who would later continue the work he started. Jesus gave these 12 disciples a special authority and sacred mission to accomplish. We see this in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. These 12 disciples worked hard to serve other people and testify the good news. However, they also faced various persecutions along the process. One of the 12 disciples, Simon Peter, son of Jonas, was a fisherman by trade and lived in Bethsaida and Capernaum. He was part of Jesus' inner circle, one of the 12 disciples, 
Interestingly, he is also the only married disciple. Peter was originally known as Simon, but Jesus gave him a nickname of Cephas, which translates to Peter, meaning rock. In the Bible, Peter was an impetuous man. He was emotional, always spoke whatever was on his mind, and impulsive. But he was the natural leader and served as the spokesman among the 12 disciples. Although he denied Jesus three times after Jesus' arrest, Peter redeemed himself after the resurrection. Despite how many times he failed and fallen, he recovered his courage and integrity to boldly preach the good news. Peter is one of the most prominent leaders of the early church. He was the author of two books in the Bible, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Other than that, he also plays a major role in the Gospels. The Gospel of Mark records Peter's account of Jesus' ministry through Mark the Evangelist, his companion who is widely believed to be John Mark. It is said that Peter did his missionary and evangelistic work as far as Babylon. It is also said that Peter is the rock and foundation of the church, with Jesus as the church's cornerstone. Peter died a martyr by crucifixion around 64 AD, during the time of Nero. He requested to be crucified upside down as he was not worthy to die the same way as Jesus. Andrew, son of Jonas, was Simon Peter's brother. Like his brother, he was also a fisherman and lived in Bethsaida and Capernaum. Originally, he was a disciple of John the Baptist, but left to follow Jesus. It is said Andrew left John because John wanted him to as he knew Jesus was the Messiah. Andrew is also the first follower of Jesus Christ and was the one who brought his brother Peter to follow Jesus. He wasn't a dominant person and mostly lived under the shadow of his brother Peter. Whenever he and Peter are mentioned together, Andrew is always mentioned second and referred to as Peter's brother. On the other hand, Peter is never referred to as Andrew's brother. Yet, Andrew was a passionate preacher and shared the gospel boldly. His main purpose was to bring others to Jesus. In 69 AD, he died a martyr in the town of Petra in Achaia, Greece. Andrew faced death with boldness and courage as Governor Apius arrested and condemned him to die on the cross. Feeling unworthy to die the same as Jesus, he begged for him to be different. He was crucified on an X-shaped cross, tying him to prolong his suffering. James, son of Zebedee, brother of John, was also one of Jesus' disciples. He was a fisherman who lived in Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Jerusalem. James, part of Jesus' inner circle, is also called James the Greater. This is to distinguish him from James, son of Alphaeus. The New Testament doesn't have much information about James, and his name never appears apart from his brother John. Like Andrew, he also lived in the shadow of his brother yet he was a man of courage and forgiveness. James preached in Jerusalem and Judea. He was arrested and killed by the sword, most likely by way of beheading during the time of Herod Agrippa. It is also said that James was arrested and led to the place of execution. His unknown accuser was moved by his courage. James's accuser repented and converted on the spot and asked to be executed alongside James. James the Greater was the first martyr among the 12 disciples 
and the only one recorded in the Bible, in Acts 12.2. John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, is also known as James the Evangelist. Like his brother, he was also a fisherman who lived in Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Jerusalem. John is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved and the third member of Jesus' inner circle. He was an ambitious man with a fiery temper and an intolerant heart. Yet with his special devotion to Jesus, he gained a favored place in Jesus' inner circle. John is one of the four authors of the Gospels who also wrote a large portion of the New Testament books. These books include 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. Interestingly, he is also the disciple who wrote more about love than any other New Testament author. There was an attempt on John's life by boiling him in oil, but God spared him. Instead, he was exiled to the island of Patmos under Domitian. They allowed him to return to Ephesus, where he then governed churches in Asia. Among the 12 disciples, he was the only one who died a natural death. Similar to Peter and Andrew, Philip also came from Bethsaida. Philip believed that Jesus was the prophet described by Moses. It is also said that he was a man with a warm heart and a pessimistic head. Yet he gave all he had, and in return God used him to advance his kingdom. Philip's most notable moment in the Gospels is when he brought Nathanael, or Bartholomew, to Jesus. Traditionally, it says that Philip preached the Gospel in Phrygia, Greece, and Syria. It is also Philip who emphasized the cross as a sign of Christianity and victory. Eventually, he traveled to the Egyptian city of Helopius, where he was whipped and thrown into prison. An account said that he died a martyr around 54 AD by hanging. He requested that his body be wrapped in papyrus and not by linen. He believed that even his dead body was unworthy of receiving the same treatment as Jesus. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was the son of Tomei, who lived in Cana in Galilee. Among the twelve disciples, he was the only one who came from royal blood or noble birth. His father was the king of Geshur, whose daughter, Mecca, was the wife of David, mother of Absalom. The name Nathaniel was probably his first name, whom Jesus called a true Israelite and whom there's nothing false. Although the New Testament gives little information about him, Bartholomew was a great searcher of the scripture. He was also a scholar in the law and the prophets. According to other accounts, he's one of the church's most adventurous missionaries. He preached with Philip in Phrygia and Heropolis, and also in Armenia. The Armenian church claims him as its founder and martyr. He also preached in India, where he translated the book of Matthew into their language. Like the other disciples, Bartholomew most likely died as a martyr too. Regarding the cause of his death, some accounts suggested that they beat, crucified, and beheaded him. The most popular, yet also the most gruesome way of death is that he was allegedly flayed alive and then beheaded. However, others say that he was beaten and then crucified, or they crucified him upside down. Matthew, also known as Levi, was a son of Alphaeus who lived in Capernaum. He was a publican and a tax collector, the most despised people in the Jewish culture. Tax collectors were hated for being very unjust. However, Jesus saw the potential in Matthew and chose him. When Matthew heard Jesus say, follow me, 
He immediately left everything, obeyed, and followed him. Matthew recognized that Jesus is someone worth sacrificing for. Matthew was the first man who wrote down the teachings of Jesus Christ and is one of the four gospel authors. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew in the Hebrew language. It is also said that he brought the Gospel to Ethiopia and Egypt. Like the Twelve, he died a martyr in Ethiopia. He was stabbed in the back with a spear by an assassin sent by King Herectus after he criticized the king's morals. Thomas Didymus, often referred to as Downing Thomas, lived in Galilee. Scholars say that Thomas was his Hebrew name, while Didymus was his Greek name. He was a pessimist and bewildered man, a man who couldn't believe it until he had seen it. Thomas was famous for refusing to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he saw the nail prints in Jesus' hands and the gash of the spear in his side. Yet he also demonstrated his devotion and courageous faith. Jesus invited Thomas to put his finger in the nail prints in his hands and on his side. Then all his doubts immediately vanished and gained a much deeper faith. An account says that Thomas preached in Perithia, Persia, and India. It is strongly suggested that Thomas started the Christian church in India. His cautious approach to believing in the resurrection established the foundation for evidence-based faith. Like the 12 disciples, Thomas also died a martyr. According to the Syrian Christian tradition, he was killed by spears by the angered locals while preaching. It happened on St. Thomas Mount in Chennai, India on July 3rd, 72 AD. James, also called James the Less, was a son of Alphaeus and Mary. He was also the brother of Jude and lived in Galilee. He is the oldest among the 12 disciples. And unlike James the Greater, he is one of the most obscure apostles. The New Testament has little information about him. However, we know that he was present in the upper room of Jerusalem after Jesus ascended to heaven. He was also known as a man with a strong character, exemplary and fiery man. According to tradition, he preached in Palestine and Egypt, where they crucified him. Another account also claimed that James also had a martyr death like the other disciples. At the age of 94, the persecutors beat and stoned him to death killed from a blow to the head. However, another tradition says that his body was solved in pieces. Simon the Zealot was a Canaanite who lived in Galilee. He is also one of the less known disciples in the Bible. Interestingly, his name was only mentioned three times in the Bible, so we don't know about him except that he was a zealot. Zealots were fanatical Jewish nationalists who had a heroic disregard for the suffering involved and the struggle for what they regarded as the purity of their faith. Simon the Zealot was present with other disciples in the upper room of Jerusalem after Jesus had ascended to heaven. An account says that he preached in Retaina on the west coast of Africa, and then he went to England. He also died a martyr like other disciples in England, where they crucified him. It happened around the year 65 AD or 107 AD. Judas Thaddeus, also known as Jude Labaius, was a son of Alphaeus or Cleophas and Mary. He lived in Galilee and was a brother of James the Younger. He was also called Judas the Zealot. So like Simon, he was an intense and violent nationalist with the dream of world power and domination by the chosen people. 
According to an account, Jude preached in many places, including the Euphrates River, and healed many people. He went to Edessa to preach the gospel. A few years after the Pentecost, he also had a martyr death around 65 AD in Beirut where his body was filled with arrows. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas, tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and to death by burning. Just as the 12 disciples were called to spread the gospel, heal the sick, win the lost, and to give up their lives for him, if necessary, we as modern-day disciples are called to do the same today, for he is worthy. Amen. He is worthy. I don't know how you could watch something like that and not be moved. <clears throat> Two things that I hope that you walk away with this morning. One is if you ever doubted who Jesus was, you will not. And that you will come to him this morning and receive him as your Lord of Lords because he is worthy. Two is a call to action. So many of us, we walk through life and we call ourselves Christians, but we do not perform at the level of these 12. We're disciples, guys. We are disciples. These guys were just men. And there was some mighty women that went with them. And actually, a lot of the women helped support them financially. You cannot go day in and day out performing at a level this low when God is worthy of a level this high. You can't. We are living in what I believe is the birthing pains. We are charged to win the lost, to heal the sick, and to change people's hearts and minds so that they will go out and be disciples themselves and continue the cycle. But if we continue to perform at the level we are, including myself, we will see lost loved ones not with us as we are in heaven, friends. And listen, you, most of us in this room, we have people that we literally cannot stand the sight of. It's true. And some of you might even have someone in this room <laughs> that you cannot stand the sight of. Okay, first of all, the word says, in so much you forgive, you are forgiven. So that right there, if there's someone in this room that you cannot stand, you need to fix that this morning. In so much you need forgiveness, all of us in this room need a lot to be forgiven. You need to forgive. You need to fix that this morning so that you can perform at the level that God wants you to perform at. So this morning, um, the band can come forward. This morning, I'd ask everyone to bow their heads, close their eyes. And listen, you'll know it's you if your heart is beating out of your chest. 
And I've been there a couple times. If you have ever doubted who God is, and it has caused you, or excuse me, Jesus is, and it has caused you not to take that step, but this morning you know that you know that you know he is actually who everyone claims he is. And you want to make things right. There is a real hell and there is a real heaven. And I'm just telling you, whether you want to believe it or not, you're going to one, one day. And it's just a fact. Thank you so much for joining us. We know that when there are this many people in person or watching online, that there is a chance that some have not started a relationship with Christ. If that's you, and you would like a relationship with Jesus that washes away the stain of sin, you will need to start by repenting of your sin, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and asking him to be the Lord over your life. That means giving up control. If you have never prayed this or you have fallen away and want to return to the kingdom of life, repeat this prayer after me and mean it. Lord Jesus, I ask you right now to come into my life and be my Lord and be my Savior. I ask you to forgive me for all of my sins and I now turn from them and I give you my life from this day on in Jesus' mighty name, amen. If you said that prayer, you are saved. Thank you for listening to Foundation Church's weekly message. We hope that you have been encouraged and empowered. If you would like to partner with us, please visit foundationchurchfl.com and click on Give.